Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm not really even looking at Stephen King, I'm continuing my examination of Netflix's smash hit Stranger Things. This particular episode I'll be reviewing Stranger Things Chapter 6. Uh, but before then, there's some uh, there's some cleanup that I want to do, some things I want to touch on. Uh, first of all, everyone that has been a longtime listener, welcome back, guys. I, I can't do it without you. And everyone tuning in for the first time, welcome to the Stephen King cast, which is constantly evolving, seeing as how I have met the mission statement that I addressed at the, the, the very beginning of this episode. It was One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King, in which each week I reviewed... Uh, one of Stephen King's books in the chronological order of publication, but I've uh, completed that. And so what I've been doing lately is is just some top 10 lists, some random reviews. And as I stated, this particular episode is, uh, is dedicated to Stranger Things episode six, as I've done my uh, Stranger Things uh, rewatch after initially watching it because I decided to um, discuss it on the Stephen King cast due to the fact that the show itself is so inspired by Stephen King. So that's that. Uh, but also, I also wanted to shamelessly plug my own stuff because I've been fortunate enough to have my own short stories published in, in various uh, anthologies and magazines out there. And um, having one short story is, is hard enough to be published. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very lucky and definitely lucky, that's the word to use, uh, that I, at this point I've now had six uh, published. So uh, the, the latest one to have been published is a short story called Spouse Swap. Um, which will be found in the Ink Stains publication. This is a recent, um, this was a, a, I just found out about this one. I'm very, very proud of Spouse Swap. I wrote it um, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, and it's one that, like I said, I'm, I'm very, very proud of. And it really examines the unreality of reality television. And I don't even like using the term unreal because there is a television show called Unreal that explores very similar things, except I, um, I will say that that spouse swap definitely does have has a horror bent to it. You can also find my short story, The Portrait, uh, from uh, the Skeptics Must Die anthology, and The Portrait follows two. Um, bumbling ghost hunters on a reality show or trying to make a reality show exploring uh, local local haunts and urban legends and they go to a supposedly haunted uh, uh, mansion that that has a, a famed portrait that's supposed to be haunted and see what happens to those two guys. Uh, I just received my copy of Trists of Fate, which is a collection of short stories that includes my short story, Forget Me Not. Uh, and in Forget Me Not, you uh, will see the examination of a relationship and what happens to one's identity during a relationship, specifically during a breakup. Uh, if you are into witches, then you can go out and purchase Wax and Wayne, a gathering of witch tales that includes my short story Hopscotch, in which a 13-year-old girl um, encounters something much more evil and dangerous than she. You can also uh, pick up Nine Tales, Told in the Dark, issue number nine, that includes my short story This World Will Eat You All the Way Up. And lastly, you can find... Uh, 
in the magazine Dark Moon Digest, issue number 22, the short story Room 207, uh, which shows a, uh, a husband traveling down south to meet up with his wife and making the, the unfortunate choice to stay in the wrong motel. Okay, guys, so thank you for, uh, at the very least, listening to my shameless plugs, but if plugs, shameless plugs, that was a that was a slip right there. So thank you for listening to my shameless plugs. Uh, but if you feel like purchasing any of those, that would also be greatly appreciated. Okay, up next, I'm going to read a listener email because, as you know, I can't do it without you guys. And um, uh, this one is from Jessica, who writes, "My name is Jessica, and like another listener, Kurt, I'm also blind." I've been a long-time listener to the podcast, but I'm just now getting up the nerve to write in. I've been a long-time Stephen King fan, having read his books since junior high when I read It, which I believe was my first Stephen King book. Speaking of books, I had a curious question regarding the covers for Desperation and The Regulators. Being blind, one thing I've always missed out on um, have been all of the book covers the sighted world gets to see, and even illustrations within the books themselves. I remember you mentioning when you put the covers of The Regulators and Desperation together, they form a complete picture, which is a detail uh, I wouldn't have known otherwise. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind describing the covers for me, either in response here or on a future episode. I think probably a description of each cover separately than seeing how the two fit together as a single cover image when you combine the two book covers would make the most sense, assuming you have the inclination and the time. I haven't yet checked to see if I can get your stories in an accessible format on Amazon, but I tend to see if they might be available in Kindle form, as I can use the Kindle app on my phone to read Kindle books. I'm hoping I can find them, as all your works sound like something I'd be interested in reading. Keep up the great work, and I'll be looking forward to your next podcast. So, Jessica, thank you for writing in, and I don't know if you can find them um, I that way. I, I don't know. I know that you can... Yeah, you can download a, a couple of them. Uh, yeah, you can definitely download a couple of them. I know that Nine Tales Told in the Dark you can definitely download onto your Kindle. And I think some of the others, I'm just not sure which. In regards to the, uh, the, the book covers of uh, The Regulators and Desperation, uh, the, 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 the picture starts on the left with um, with the cover of the regulators. So I, when you put the two of them together, you put the, the regulators on the left, desperation on the right. And as the move it, as the image moves across to the right, uh, it starts to uh, it starts to devolve and, and blend uh, and, and make one one perfect picture. So the, the regulators picture uh, perfectly encapsulates the, the suburban wonder uh, within the regulators and on display you have a, uh, a suburban house um, in a nice little suburban town and on the bottom left of the, the book cover you have a, a boy on his perfectly green lawn uh, sitting next to his dog his mother is stepping outside of the house to probably keep an eye on uh, on him and she's wearing a blue house dress under a perfectly blue happy sky with 
with white clouds in the distance. Um, now, things start to get a little strange once you realize that in the top left corner above the, the name Richard Bachman, there looks to be what appears to be a vulture's head peering down on the, the proceedings below. Now, right behind the house, peering over the house, is an oversized ghostly image of a cowboy looking to be on the hunt. In the background, moving right towards the edge of the book, there is another suburban house that happens to be on fire. The dark smoke billowing out of the house moves um, behind a cactus that is sprouting up in the middle of the suburban street. And at the bottom right-hand corner of the uh, book cover, you have this wolf-looking creature, um, an oversized wolf-looking creature. That's the, the biggest thing on the page. So this uh, definitely um, has the, 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 the aspects of the regulators within this cover, specifically the, the, the Western sort of theme, the, the, the ghostly cowboy, the suburban hell on earth that occurs within the pages of that book. But as you start to move uh, towards the right hand of the, um, of, the, uh, of the cover, you start to blend into desperation territory and with the desperation book cover on the very left you have the hind quarters of that wolf uh creature um and so on the bottom left hand page of the desperation cover you have the hind quarters you have the 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 smoke that started billowing from the the suburban house is now the the backdrop of the desperation cover and kind of looks like uh clouds Actually, let me pull this up and look at it a little bit closer. Yeah, so you know now it looks just like dark clouds. You have cactus in the distance. You have another wolf creature walking um, in in the background. It definitely looks like a desert landscape. Um, you have another uh, vulture, and you have a snake and a uh, spider, a black widow spider, crawling on a child's doll so that is and then that, that is the desperation cover and so when you put it together it moves from this suburban wonderland into this horrific desert landscape so uh, jessica i hope this helps kind of you know put an image in your head of of what that looks like is up next i'm going to uh get into the wikipedia summary of stranger things chapter six and wikipedia writes jonathan pulls nancy through the portal in the tree saving her from the creature jonathan returns nancy safely to her room but she is afraid to be alone and asks jonathan to stay with her steve dropping by for a visit sees them together through the bedroom window jonathan joins nancy in her bed though nothing sexual takes place the next day they resolve to hunt and kill the monster themselves purchasing ammunition and bear traps from an army surplus store before they head out nancy sees a defaced marquee referring to her as a slut she hunts down and finds steve and his friends and as she confronts steve jonathan comes to her aid jonathan and steve get into an argument that escalates into a fist fight when steve insults jonathan's family 
The cops arrest Jonathan after he inadvertently assaults an officer. Joyce and Hopper decide to investigate together after Hopper discovers his home has been bugged. They track down the woman claiming that a covert facility stole her baby. She is revealed to be Elle's biological mother who underwent MK Ultra training while pregnant. Jane, now 11, was confiscated by Dr. Brenner with a fake story that Terry miscarried. Mike, Lucas, and Dustin are still unable to agree about searching for Elle. Lucas angrily parts ways with Dustin and Mike again after a failed reconciliation attempt, following the compass alone to the laboratory while Mike and Dustin search for Elle in the woods. Alone in the woods, Elle misbehaves, stealing frozen waffles, her new favorite food, from a grocery store and shattering the door on an employee. Flashbacks reveal that while on her re reconnaissance mission, Elle accidentally opened the gate between the normal world and the upside down, allowing the monster through. While searching for Elle, Mike and Dustin are ambushed by Troy, threatening Dustin with a knife. He demands that Mike jump off a cliff into the lake where Will's body was discovered, almost certainly fatal. Mike jumps, but is levitated to safely by Elle, who breaks Troy's arm. Mike and Dustin reconcile with Elle, and they head back to Mike's house. Lucas sees agents leaving the laboratory and realizes where they're going. Mike's house to take Elle. So my review... We pick up where we left off with Nancy and the Upside Down and Jonathan in the real world. We get a sense of how these two worlds relate to each other as they can hear each other screaming for one another. Nancy is disoriented, attempting to come back and covered in goo. When Barb awoke in the Upside Down in episode 3, I wondered why she was wet. I forgot all about the gooey tendrils and the fungus. Nancy gets to the tree, and in a great shot, we see her hand shoot through the membrane of the portal and is helped back into her world by Jonathan. And by the way, I just love the sound, the, 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 um, the sound design of the monster. With Nancy safe, reality takes control and closes the portal over the tree as if it was never there, and we get our credits. We're in the end game now, with only a few episodes left, and with the chapter entitled The Monster, oof, I got goosebumps. Steve and his two goonish friends are in the car heading towards Nancy's house. He's worried about her, but is getting sick of these two clowns. As he displays his ninja prowess to ascend to Nancy's window, he sees her on the bed with Jonathan consoling her. From his perspective, it looks like he was blown off so she can spend time with the sensitive weirdo kid. A second earlier, we saw him beginning to push away his ridiculous friends, and with him feeling like he's been scorned, he's going to swing back in their direction before ultimately landing on the side of the good guys by the end of the series. Joyce and Hop discuss the goings-on of the town and his adventures into the laboratory. He believes that the room he spotted the stuffed lion and the picture on the wall was Will's room, but Joyce quickly shoots down uh, that down by referring to one of Will's detailed pieces of art. Great detail, by the way, by having it drawn on lined paper. As someone who drew a lot at that age, I can tell you that many reams of lined paper were used. Hop refers to the information he gathered from the library, specifically the MK Ultra experiments, the survivor who had lost a child due to the experiments. Back at the Wheeler home, Nancy washes off the goo off of her and understandably is having a hard time dealing with the monster and her near-death experience. Jonathan's being a nice guy by staying with her but sleeping on the floor, not making any moves. Nancy, however, wants comfort and asks him to join her in, in her bed. Not for any reason other than comfort, but that's not what it's going to look like to Karen Wheeler in the morning. 
in the morning, Mike throws a temper tantrum, temper tantrum and ruins the fort that he had made for Eleven. Frustrated at the missing will, frustrated that his kata is broken, frustrated at Eleven uh, hurling Lucas, frustrated at Lucas being so hot-headed, frustrated that Eleven took off. Hop and Joyce, meanwhile, head to find Terry Ives, the volunteer of the MK Ultra experiments. Jonathan and Nancy discover the events of the night before. Nancy can't get past the deer and how the monster was eating it. She's deducing that if it's eating the deer, then why shouldn't it have done the same to Will and Barbara? In order to get them back, if they're still alive, they realize they need to get rid of the monster. But because it's a predator, they know it must abide by the limitations of physiology. It wasn't wounded, but if you'd asked Arnold Schwarzenegger, he'd tell you, if it bleeds, we can kill it. They begin the rudimentary plans to go monster hunting. We check in with Mr. Clark, who gets a knock at the door from the bird of prey who had killed Benny. And when I first saw this, I was terrified that the nicest guy on the show was about to get offed. Thankfully, we learn that he's not in danger, merely being used. She's pretending to be a representative of a statewide AV club, looking for the best and brightest of Hawkins. Unknowingly, Mr. Clark sells his kids out. Dustin and Mike discussed the day before, and Dustin, Dustin, guys, Dustin's the man. He pushes back against Mike and holds him accountable for his actions, as well as the actions of Lucas and Eleven. He reminds Mike about the rules of friendship. Because he was the first one to throw down, he has to be the first one to apologize. Eleven, alone in the woods, flashes back to a memory of when Brenner, her papa, forced her to make contact with the monster in that black space. Millie Bobby Brown is awesome, you guys. She stares at herself in a small pond and explodes the water in a flash of anger. As I stated earlier, Karen Wheeler breaks into her daughter's bedroom to find the sleeping bag at the foot of her bed, suggesting that her daughter was having a good time the night before. The secrets of Nancy's life even if it were just a typical teenage girl behavior, is as much a horror movie to parents as it is with her being chased by a monster. Mike and Dustin arrive at Lucas's house. Lucas opens the door, by the way. Not his parents. I love that aside from the quick shot at the funeral. We never see these people. It's a kid's world with only kids existing in it. Reluctantly, at the urging of Dustin, Mike warily admits that he drew first blood. Inside, Lucas agrees to shake, but only if Mike gives up working with L and focuses on finding Will. Mike naturally does not agree to this, and it's up to Dustin to remind them the importance of sticking together, using a Dungeons and Dragons anecdote. But the impetuousness of children are too much for his logical sensibilities, and the quartet remains divided for the time being. The interactions between these kids, as always, is fantastic. Dustin provides the comedic relief, the Star Wars references, references are dropped, and everyone acts perfectly in line with their characters. Elle, meanwhile, makes her way to a supermarket. From the looks of everyone, she's every bit the weirdo that Lucas has made her out to be. As she makes her way to the Ego Isle, she flashes back to the moment when Brenner sent her into the sensory deprivation tank to find the monster. Here's the thing that I find so powerful about these flashbacks. Unlike Firestarter, where Charlie was forced to engage in experiments because her father was held captive, Elle agrees to these experiments because she honestly wants to make her papa proud. It's just so twisted and sad. It's impossible to feel bad for this character and makes you hate Brenner for manipulating her. So, spoiler alert, he dies in episode 8, or appears to. Either way, I want more Brenner in season 2. 
it should make sense that he was as mysterious in this season as he was because that's the part his character should play in this narrative at this point in time. For each of our characters, the government is shadowy, secretive, and larger than they can comprehend. However, as we move deeper into the story for season two, I want to peel back the layers of the story to reveal more about the characters who inhabit it. Much in the way how Lost treated the concept of the others. First, they're introduced through the perspective of the survivors of Oceanic 815. Through the character's main eyes, or sorry, sorry, through the main character's eyes, they're dangerous, they're sinister, they're almost supernatural, they're boogeymen. But as the series went on, we learned more about them and realized that they're not boogeymen. They're never supernatural. We were only basing our judgments on them from how our main characters felt about them. I want the Hawken lab, Hawkins Lab to function like the Dharma Initiative in that sense, and Brenner especially. I want to know what makes him tick. I want to know if he had actual paternal feelings towards Eleven or if it was just an act to keep this weapon in control. And spoiler alert again for the conclusion of, of uh, the, the final episode, but it looks like um, Brenner actually might be alive because uh, it's been reported online that if you zoom in on the newspaper clipping, uh, Dr. Brenner has been interviewed after the events of the, the final episode, so it looks like he might still be alive. Good. Anyway, in the grocery store, she steals the Eggos, and as I saw online... The store manager missed a perfect opportunity to shout, Lego my Egos!" as he chases after her. I don't know where I saw it online. I can't take credit for that, but I think that that was just a perfect opportunity. Joyce and Hop arrive at Terry Ives' house. They meet her sister first, then the comatose Terry Ives. Through the sister, they learn of the MK Ultra experiments and how Terry believes that her child, uh, who apparently died in the third trimester, has special powers. This child, of course, is the girl we've known as Eleven. No doubt she was taken from her mother, through surgery, I suppose, and she's been forced to believe that she's died. Her daughter's name, and Eleven's name, is Jane. To make sure that we don't miss the connection, they keep cutting the scenes that we've already had with Eleven, just to really hammer it home. It turns this scene into less of an actual scene and more of a trailer. I wish they went with for more of ambiguity here rather than bludgeoning us over the head. Lucas, sticking to his guns, has a great suit-up moment, strapping a compass to the front of his bike uh, and a headband around his head. Um, he heads off to find Willie by, Will by himself and passes the Hawkins power and light truck on his way out. Elsewhere in town, Dustin and Mike have a phenomenal conversation about friendship. Thinking about this show and stories like It, The Body, and Dreamcatcher, along with movies like The Goonies, you think about the power of friendship in these stories, childhood friendships specifically, and contrast that with adult friendships and how tenuous they can be. No wonder. Kids talk about stuff like this. Friendship is more important to them, and they talk about it. I loved this moment in the show. Stripped away from the supernatural and the sci-fi, it was just two kids on their bike talking about what makes sense to them, what they can control in this world. Their friendship. Lucas has followed the compass, which has taken him to the Hawkins lab, which he can't enter because of a fence. Gotta say, I love that this kid straps that headband on as he heads off into the woods. This, combined with the brief name drop of Nam in an earlier episode as he displayed his army knife, leads me to believe that his father, briefly seen at the funeral, was in Vietnam. Or maybe he just has a fascination with it. Meanwhile, Jonathan and Nancy go to the army surplus, surplus store to acquire bear traps, ammo, gasoline, and other weapons they'll need. As Nancy says in a nice comedic beat, 
to go monster hunting. There's two ways of approaching this scene. You sit back and enjoy these kids gearing up for war, or you scream at your television wondering how they're getting the money to pay for these purchases. Either way is legitimately valid, but I'm fine with them needing weapons and acquiring weapons because they need the weapons. My argument would be it's already established that Nancy comes from a pretty affluent family, and she, being the good girl, no doubt has a savings account for college. To me, I don't need this spelled out. Knowing the characters allows me to deduce these things. Nancy and Jonathan find Steve and his cronies spray-painting Steve's revenge because he believed that Nancy had been cheating on him. This leads to the much-anticipated showdown between Jonathan and Steve. In order to get to the fight, we have to put Jonathan in a position where he would actually have to fight. So when Steve starts taking nasty, nasty jabs at his family, Jonathan has had enough. Which is important the way I look at it. It keeps Jonathan fighting for himself and not fighting on behalf of a girl. It gives Nancy her own day to fight if she should choose to. So rather than two boys fighting over a girl, it's two boys from two different very social circles fighting because of shared animosity, their only interaction possible because of a girl. Jonathan, by the way, gets in some pretty meaty thwacks. It stops only because of the police, specifically the goofy deputy duo, one who gets a rap on the nose before um, comedically chasing after a fleeing Steve. In the woods, Dustin and Mike continue their search for L, but are discovered by Troy and his lackey. The chase begins, which brings them to the quarry. Lucas, meanwhile, continues to search the perimeter of the fence and climbing a tree. Nice touch. You can't tell a story about kids without some tree climbing. He uses his binoculars to gather data on the situation. He spots the army trucks and the Hawkins power vans that he had spotted around town. Lucas now understands who the bad men are that L had been talking about. One regret that I have with this show is I wish that L and Lucas were forced to be uh, just break off with one another, stuck in the woods or something. I mean, not a whole bottle episode, but close. I would love this animosity that he has towards her grow into the closest friendship through a shared trial in which they had to rely on one another. And it doesn't happen in this season, but hopefully we'll be able to get it in next season. Back to the bullies. I wonder what non-King fans thought of this scene. It's overly dramatic with a heightened sense of danger. The bully has brought a knife to a rock fight. It's very specifically a Stephen King reference to Henry Bowers, the bully from It. Or if you want, the bully from Sometimes They Come Back. I don't recall if Ace Merrill had a switchblade in the body, but I wouldn't be surprised. Anyway, I can see some people saying that this detail is much too dangerous, too unrealistic, maybe but it's very, very Stephen King, purposefully. As someone who sees that and appreciates what they're doing, I can't find anything wrong with that. Um, the bullies torment the boys um, and almost forcing Mike off the edge of the quarry, leading to a kick-ass moment in which he's saved by Eleven, who then takes her wrath out on the bullies. I should have been uh, keeping this entire time uh, like a every episode i should have been doing like a, a dustin key moment in every episode huge missed opportunity for my on my part because him screaming after the bullies that's right you'd better run that's our friend and she's crazy it's just one of the many scenes uh scene stealing lines from this kid l's demonstration of power weakens her and she collapses this is important to her character we can't have her too powerful we get another flashback of her time in the lab and in the black space, she sees the monster in the distance. 
She approaches it, and their contact forces her to unleash her powers in a way that scientists had not seen before. The walls start to crack. As Elle will tell us, it's when she created the gate. Also, if she finds the monster in this space, is this where it's originally from? And what is it eating? Lastly, in the distance, it looked so small, it made me think of the acrobat and the flea analogy. Keeping with that analogy, what if it's more like a flea than we know? What if it's, you know, what if it is as small as a flea where it comes from? So what if where it comes from, if it's the size of a flea, are there other monsters, larger and more dangerous? Our characters reunite and head home. Lucas, keeping tabs from his tree, spots fleets of trucks leaving the base in a hurry. At Mike's house, one of the operatives spots the boys and Elle heading home. This is one of the strongest endings on the show, and I don't know how anyone could turn this off and say, okay, I'll just wait for the next episode. So that's all I got for now, guys. I know this was a relatively short episode, but... Um, don't worry, the next episode will be coming soon, and if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com or leave a review on iTunes. And may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Cast.